All right, well, if you're a visitor with us, you've got a doozy of a text today, don't we? Sometimes when, uh, sometimes when we do Bible studies, we'll, we'll read through the text and then ask, okay, what jumps out at you? What, what questions do you see? What things do you notice there in the text? And if we took that approach with, this, with these verses, we'd be here forever, wouldn't we? Uh, there is, uh, there's so much there. We're stepping back into our series on Genesis and, uh, you know, if you gave every preacher in the world one sermon uh, and one text, none of them would choose this one, all right? But we're going to take it because we, we we're not afraid of difficult texts, right? The Lord is going to speak to us through his word, so we're going to look at this. Next week, Leon is going to take us through the story of Noah and the flood, and then following that, Adam is going to take us through the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. And then, believe it or not, we're into the Christmas season, and we're going to turn our attention to Advent and uh, the coming uh, of the Lord Jesus. So let's pray, uh, and then we'll look at this text together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, and even as we have remembered the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, Father, would you encourage us, would you fill our hearts with joy uh, knowing that you loved us, uh, that you sought us out, uh, that you desired to restore a relationship that was broken, and you did that through Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would help us, give us uh, an understanding here. And Father, as we approach this particular text, we do so with humility because right away we are made aware uh, that we just don't know as much as we think we do. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us here. We pray that you would speak to our hearts as your spirit takes your word and plants it deep within us. May it bear fruit uh, in our lives, the fruit of repentance. And, uh, Father, we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Would you take a few moments quietly? Don't say anything out loud, but just pray that God would speak to your heart today through these words. And then if you would take just a few moments again silently and just pray for me that God might speak through me this morning. Well, Father, we do come humbly. We come humbly as listeners and uh, Father, I come humbly as a speaker just to say that we need you that we are indeed wasting our time this morning uh, apart from you working through your spirit in us. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that and that you would help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever seen video of lava advancing from a volcano. It's pretty uh, spectacular. It just kind of plods along, doesn't it? Taking territory uh, wherever it, it, it goes. Uh, it just kind of moves along slowly, eating up anything in its path. And nothing can stop it. Seemingly, nothing can, uh, can thwart its progress as it moves forward. It just advances. And as it does, it consumes everything in its path. 
And, and that feels a bit like what sin does, right? We don't have to look far in our world to see the advance of sin all around us. Uh, every generation has probably felt that theirs was the worst generation of all, right? And, and certainly we could make a case that sin has advanced uh, in our day, and uh, this is the, the, as bad as it's ever been. You know, we, we can look out around us, we can read it in the newspapers uh, or online, we can see sin and evil moving forward and advancing and as it does, consuming everything and everyone in its path. Even among people around us. Even among friends and family members. And if we have eyes to see it, maybe even in ourselves. You know, perhaps even in our own lives. There are, there are ways that you are struggling with sin in your own life. that You weren't struggling with years ago. And perhaps even in our own lives, sin is advancing uh, methodically uh, in our own lives. And it begins to consume us as it advances and takes ground. Well, Genesis 6, this particular text today, we are at a low point uh, in the, the, the human condition. And, and again, this is an exceedingly difficult text. There are, there are so many things here that we simply struggle to fully understand what specifically the author had in mind as he wrote these words. But it's not difficult for us to see why this text is here. This text links what has gone before to what is to follow in the judgment of the flood. How do we get from the line of Seth in Genesis 5, who began to call out on the name of the Lord, who began to call out to the Lord? How do we get from that to a universal judgment in the flood? Well, this text tells us by, by, by highlighting the steady advance of sin within the human race that ultimately leads us to the judgment that is to come. But... There is something of the gospel here in these verses as well. And so as we look into this text, I want us to see something of ourselves, but also something of a God who does not leave us to fend for ourselves. In these first four verses, we see that God's patience with humanity is incredible, but it isn't infinite. God's patience with humanity is incredible, but it isn't infinite. Just take a look at these first four verses with me. I'm just going to read them. You follow along in Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. 
These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. In verse 1, we see that mankind is actually doing what God had instructed them to do. They are increasing and filling the earth. Remember, that's what God had commanded them to do, to, uh, to increase on the earth. But even as they increase, what else increases? Their wickedness and their evil. And here we see the first of our difficulties in the text. Uh, whatever our decision about the identity of these sons of God and daughters of men and Nephilim and, uh, and, and uh, the mighty men of old, whatever our interpretive decision is regarding their uh, particular identity, the point is that here we see the overstepping of bounds that God has clearly established as humanity becomes more and more corrupt. In this account of the sons of God, there is a kind of a, almost a new stage in the advance of evil. So, so let me just say a, a, a few words about the identity of the sons uh, of God. The, they, the reasons that people have given over the years or the, the, the possibilities of their identity uh, typically fall into two main categories, either natural or supernatural. From a natural point of view, the sons of God here could be a reference to the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the wicked line of Cain. But as we, as we said in, in previous weeks when we looked at those texts around the, the lineage of those two men, I don't think it's right to attribute unbridled evil to the line of Cain and uh, kind of uh, you know, perfect righteousness, untarnished righteousness to the line of Seth. Sin is everywhere. Sin is in both the line of Cain and in the line of Seth. So I, I think something else is going on. There's another view that the sons of God are powerful rulers of the day who take wives as they please. Remember in Genesis 4, we saw the story of Lamech who had multiple wives and he was an unjust, cruel man. Uh, perhaps the sons of God are like Lamech was, except maybe on steroids, right? They're even worse than, than, than Lamech. That's a possibility. Uh, it would certainly demonstrate an, an expansion of evil. But I'm not sure that the way the text is written will, I'm not sure that makes that the best option for us. I tend to think that there's a supernatural element here. I think that that best fits how the term sons of God is used in other instances where it reflects supernatural beings, angels or fallen angels. But, but what then does it mean? Well, the sons of God could be angels who overstepped their domains to marry daughters uh, of men. And this is, I think, a good alternative. It was the, certainly the preference historically going back a, a long way. And there are a few places in the New Testament where this view might be uh, suggested, uh, particularly Jude chapter, or sorry, chapter, Jude verse 6 and 7. Where Jude says, and he's, he's thinking here about uh, Enoch, uh, one of the apocryphal books, and he says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority 
but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Perhaps that's a reference to what is going on here in Genesis 6. There's also another uh, text in 2 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5, where Peter says, If God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, and he goes on to talk about how God will preserve us. Again, you see a, a kind of a potential reference to what is going on in this era, in this time, and in this text. So that's a possibility. The other supernatural option, which, which I, I think might be the best, is related to that. That the sons of God are, are demonic fallen angels who inhabit uh, men, who, who possess men in order to cause them to uh, to sin against God. Uh, the bottom line is that we simply don't know <laughs> the exact identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men. In fact, if you were to uh, take a stack of, of commentaries and theological papers, uh, you, you could make a stack uh, about this high and this high and this high and this high with these four main views. And anytime you have that many different views or that many arguments for different views, it means that we just don't know. And so we come to a place where we hold a, a, a conviction or an understanding, but we hold it loosely, right? And that's what we have to do here. You know, if you were to press me into a decision, uh, I, I would see this as an attempt uh, to bring supernatural power or immortality uh, illicitly. Uh, among men, uh, and somehow involving angelic beings to do so. But again, we may get to heaven one day and figure that that was completely off, you know. Uh, maybe Moses will be there going, guys, you were way off, you know. Uh, incidentally, th there, it is certainly possible, and I think probable, that Moses' original audience would have a little clearer understanding uh, of, of who he might be talking about, particularly when we get to verse 4 and the Nephilim. Like, who are the Nephilim? It, it appears that they would have a better understanding uh, as an original audience as to who these, uh, who these people were. Uh, when we get to, to verse 4 and the Nephilim and the mighty men, it, it's possible that, that the Nephilim in verse 4 are the offspring of these unions. That's one way that you could read the text so that they are synonymous with the mighty men of old who appear there. Uh, it's not necessarily the case. I'm not sure that's the best understanding. It seems like the Nephilim were a group in that day that were known, uh, that were known by reputation uh, as being violent and powerful. If you remember when the Israelites send spies into the promised land in Numbers, and the spies come back, and because they are fearful, they reference the Nephilim. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that there are actually giants or Nephilim uh, in the promised land, I think that that's a hyperbole that's used to bring fear into the, the Israelites, right? But the Nephilim had a reputation. Uh, if the, the mere name, mentioning of the name Nephilim was, was to cause fear in the hearts of the Israelites, it's because in this particular day they had a reputation uh, of, being, uh, of being powerful and violent, 
The mighty men, though, do seem to be offspring of this union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, and probably are best seen as a kind of warrior class of, uh, of, of, of ill repute, right? Uh, a group of people known for their violence and their violent deeds. Again, the point is, that, don't miss the overall point. The point is that mankind is beyond self-help at this stage. Mankind is beyond self-help and they've kind of passed a point of no return as sin has escalated and corruption has developed to this particular point. If you have any more questions about that, by the way, Gage is over there. He'll be glad to answer them for you at the end of the service. Sorry, Gage, that's the best I got, man. All right, sorry. Uh, Okay, well, God determines then in verse 3 to bring judgment to the land, to humanity. So the first thing God does in verse 3 is he determines to remove his restraining influence on sin. And I think that's the best way to understand that statement in verse 3 where God says, my spirit will not abide in man forever. It could also be translated, my spirit will not strive with man forever. But, but at the end of the day, I think the result is, is, is the same. Remember the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And it is the hovering spirit of God that brings form an order to the chaos in chapter 1, verse 2. And so to remove, for God to remove his spirit would allow the chaos of sin to flourish. God essentially giving man what they desire as a form of judgment. Now we see that in Romans chapter 1. Remember when we studied, when we went through the the book of Romans, in chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed in our present day. It is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And as we continued on in that chapter, the way God's wrath is being revealed even now is as he gives man over to their sin. That one of the ways God judges, even now, is by allowing man to go his way and do what he wants. And I think that is what's happening here. There is the removing of this restraining influence of God's spirit, which merely causes chaos to flourish, which is what man wants, life without God. But God also then sets a kind of countdown timer uh, to a day of greater judgment that is to come. And again, I think that's the best way to understand in verse 3 where he says his days shall be 120 years. Because of the, the, the immorality of man's flesh, God sets a closing date at which point he's going to bring judgment. I think that's the better way to understand the 120 years, much in the same way that God said to Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 
I think it's best to see it kind of as a countdown timer. You can also, it has also been taken as a reference to the amount of years, the lifespan that men would begin to live. But you see examples of people living longer than 120 years. I think it's probably best to think of it in terms of a countdown to a greater judgment that is to come. And this is where our sin always takes us, doesn't it? Our sin always causes us to turn inward and it begins to make us presumptive about God. It gives us notions, uh, if I can say it that way. Uh, If you think back to Genesis 3, the text that we studied and looked at on the fall, the temptation was from the the, the serpent that, that their eyes would be opened and they would be like God. That in taking of the fruit, they would be able to assume a position to declare what is right and what is wrong. And we saw later in uh, verse 22 of that same chapter, uh, when God brings judgment and blocks the way to the tree of life, he does so so that they won't be able to partake of the tree of life and live forever in immortality. Uh, again, if you, if you read ahead in Genesis in 11, when we get to the Tower of Babel, the desire is that they would build a tower with its top in the heavens, that they would make a name for themselves. See, sin always turns us away from God such that we install ourselves as God. That's what sin does. It makes us presumptive. Uh, it, it makes us think and believe and act as if we our God, as if we are our our God. And so we often will make a God of our happiness, where where that becomes our ultimate pursuit. How many times have I heard someone say, God just wants me to be happy? Well, Well, look, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy in Him. He wants you to find your fullness of joy and life in Him, because that is ultimate happiness. See, he wants what is best for you. And so what we are saying when we justify sinful decisions by saying God wants me to be happy is that I'm a better God than God. That I know better what will make me ultimately happy than the God who created and rules over me. And listen, that is exactly what we saw in Adam and Eve in the garden. You will be like God, knowing right from wrong, declaring what is right and what is wrong. Wouldn't that be exciting? Let's have a bite. And this is what sin causes us to do as well. God is patient and blessedly so, but even his patience has limits. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we see this pictured vividly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, but, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God is patient. Praise the Lord, He is. Amen? He is patient. 
but his patience is not infinite. And he will give us over to our stubborn desires and ultimately will bring judgment. And so all of us will stand before God and all of us will give an account. And you know, the excuse, but God, I thought you just wanted me to be happy. It just isn't going to cut it on that day. So we're in a bad place here in Genesis chapter 6, aren't we? Sin has increased to the point of no return, and God has determined to bring judgment. God does not run from sin. He doesn't run from sin in Genesis 6. He doesn't run from sin in our day. He is going to confront it, and he is going to deal with it. God is going to meet sin with judgment. In verses 5 to 7, the, the presumptiveness of man is now couched in the language of total depravity. Look at verses 5 to 7. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We'll stop there for now. That's pretty uh, all-inclusive, isn't it? Uh, Derek Kidner, one commentator, he said, sin here uh, in verse 5 is now fully grown. It's fully grown. It's reached a point that it is, uh, that it is fully grown. Uh, again, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, that every intention, even the desires of man were evil. So that, so, that man, uh, so that man schemes and devises intentions and plans of ways to do evil, of ways to demonstrate their wickedness. Uh, that every intention of the thoughts of, heart, uh, of his heart was only evil continually. There is no part of man that is left untainted where sin has not invaded. Uh, have you ever done a slip and slide? You know, you, you put a big uh, tarp down on a hill and you get some soap and water uh, and then you, you slide down. You can't stop, can you? You just hope there's nothing at the bottom that will kill you because you can't stop the slide. And that's what's happened here. Uh, sin has advanced and it has continued uh, and, and we are sliding down. It's fully grown. And this is where we are in verse 5. The Lord saw. The Lord saw. And even, again, the intentions and designs of man are evil. Always devising ways to try to usurp God's authority. Uh, the, the, the hearts of humanity are bent toward wickedness. They're not bent toward God. They are bent inward toward sin and wickedness. And this sin is going to receive its just reward in verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And listen to this. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. The sin of man is going to meet the, judge, uh, the judgment of, of God in response. It says he will blot out 
It's an interesting word, an interesting phrase. In 2 Kings 21, we see it in verse 13, where he says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And here's the word. He says, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Uh, the, the discipline of the Lord there, uh, he is going to wipe Jerusalem clean. And, and by that, he means uh, in discipline and, and judgment for their sin. I will blot out, uh, he says here uh, in verse 7, I will blot out man from the face of the earth. Judgment is going to be complete and it's going to be total. His wrath is going to cover over every living thing. And again, just make a note, once again, just like in Genesis 3, creation gets bound up in that. Remember in Genesis 3 where he curses the ground because of the sin of man. In the same way, creation is going to get tied in and going to experience the judgment of God along with mankind. Well, not only did the Lord see And not only did the Lord say, but in verse 6, sandwiched in between, we see that the Lord was sorry. The Lord was sorry. He was grieved. Now, I'm going to imagine that. God is grieved. And so we're seeing here, we're seeing in verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. A little bit later in verse 7, for I am sorry that I have made them. I'm saddened that I've made them. And we're seeing here uh, from, from, from the text, uh, from a human perspective, much as a, a parent can grieve the decision to let a wayward child go in his own wickedness and sin. So the creator grieves. His creation The man that he's created doesn't see what he's doing. That doesn't see uh, its own wickedness. But God sees it. And it actually saddens him. Remember that that God created as an overflow of his all-satisfying love. He longed for us to experience the love that he enjoys in relationship with himself. Father, Son and Spirit. And when sin interrupts that, it stirs his anger. Much as a parent would have a justified anger towards something that was hurting his child, here God sees what mankind does not see. He sees that mankind is bent essentially on bringing harm to itself because they can, because they think they can do better. And while justified in bringing judgment upon that sin and mankind, he's grieved. He's saddened. Now, this doesn't make God culpable for man's sin. Any more than a a parent would be culpable for their child's sin, even that they brought punishment and were saddened by it. Nor does it mean that God somehow didn't know what would transpire. I mean, we affirm here that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of all future events. Now, this wasn't a surprise to God. But knowing what is going to happen 
doesn't remove the possibility of being saddened by it when it does happen, does it? You know that from your own experience. You can feel grief without being culpable and while knowing ahead of time the end result of a person's actions. So when we read here in the text that God repented or that he relented or that he was sorry for something, it's not because his intrinsic character changed. Rather, it's because his relationship with his creatures, with his creation changed in response to their disobedience. See, God is unchangeable in his commitment to the covenant promises that he has made. He won't waver in those. But he exhibits different facets of his character in response to the choices of his creatures. And this is what I think we see here. Now, incidentally, anger and wrath uh, was not an emotion that God had before the fall. Anger and wrath is not intrinsic to his character. It is a response, a just response, and a righteous response to sin. But it is different in some way than his love, because his love was eternal, wasn't it? He always, the Father always loved the Son in eternity past. But anger and wrath, in one sense, is temporary. It's kindled by sin, but one day God will destroy sin finally and completely. And that's, I think, what we see when we see that the Lord was sorry that he had made. But don't miss this. There is good news here embedded in the bad. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Now it is critical here. It is absolutely essential that we see here that Noah is intended to be included in the group of those who deserve and are destined for the righteous judgment of God. It's critical here that verse 8 follows verse 7. Noah is not uh, exempt from the judgment that was due all of humanity. As if he had somehow merited something different. Noah found favor. Noah found grace. Noah experienced the undeserved kindness of God. We can't read the text to say that there was something in Noah that set him apart from the rest of humanity. Some kind of merit in himself. No, this is grace. This is unmerited favor. Noah uh, and his family and presumably any who would have come into the ark with him will be saved from judgment simply because God chose to show them favor or grace. And this is good news for you and I too. God doesn't run from sin. He doesn't run from their sin. He doesn't run from our sin. He's going to confront it. But where sin increases, God's grace abounds to us. Listen, all of us 
are standing in the way of God's judgment. And what I mean by that is that God's righteous judgment is headed right for us. It's coming right at us. Jonathan Edwards, uh, in, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, he talked about uh, a rock that is held over a spider web. If the rock were to fall, there's no way that the spider web can avoid being shattered and smashed. The only thing that holds back the judgment of God is his patience and his mercy, such that if God were to remove his staying hand, his judgment would fall on everyone. Nothing holds it back except his mercy. And yet, undeserving as we were, God has made a way. There is good news for you and me. Just as a, a first responder runs not away from a burning building, but runs into a burning building to save the life of one trapped inside, so God in Jesus has run toward you and toward your sin in order to save you from its effects. He took the righteous wrath of God for you and now offers you life. What incredible news that is. So what's our response then to such a gracious and compassionate God? What what, what must we do here in response to this text? We must run to the God who runs toward us. Run to the God who runs toward us. Look, if you're a believer today, this probably has a couple of points of contact for us. First of all, don't buy the lie that God wants you to be happy as you determine happiness. That's not what followers of Jesus, of Jesus do. It's a counterfeit. If you really are a believer, you're headed for chastening and discipline. But worse, you may be fooling yourself altogether. In which case you're heading for judgment. The Apostle Paul tells us to look at our lives and examine if we are still in the faith. And certainly that is relevant here. If you are, however, desperately seeking to follow after Jesus and struggling, remember that the mark of a believer is not perfection. It's repentance. It's struggle. With sin. God is a God of compassion. As, a believer, as believers, our sin has been paid for in Jesus. And so he looks upon our struggles with sin the way a parent would look upon the sickness of a child. With compassion. With a desire to see that child relieved from that sickness. So rejoice in the favor that God has poured out on you even as you struggle with his power to live a godly life. If you're not a believer here today, there's only one thing to do. And that's to understand that it's only the patience of God that keeps him in this very moment from sending you to eternal judgment. Look, 
We don't always talk about sin in these stark terms uh, like this. But we can't get away from what this text says about the human condition, about our condition. Our hearts are bent away from the one thing that can bring us ultimate joy in the universe. But God cares. And that's why he has brought you to this moment where you can hear what Jesus has done. That he has done for you exactly what you needed. That he took the wrath that you deserve so that you can be adopted into God's family as a son or a daughter by faith. Well, the bad news here is that God's patience, while incredible, is not infinite. Judgment, deserved judgment is coming. The good news, though, is that where sin increased, grace abounded. That there is an alternative available to us who would turn toward Jesus in faith and receive from him the gift that he offers. Forgiveness of sin and a new life, a new relationship of love with our Father, the Creator. Will you run toward the God who runs toward you? In the book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes of of Pilgrim, of Christian, uh, on a journey. And as the journey progresses, the pack of sin on Christian's back increases, gets bigger and bigger throughout the book as he desperately tries to make his way to the celestial city. And there's one great, uh, one great scene uh, in the book where he ascends a hill and he sees the cross. And in seeing the cross, his pack of sin is loosed and falls from his back. And as, as only John Bunyan can do, just listen to what, uh, what we see here, uh, Christian say. Uh, he says, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. A wall was called salvation. And up this way did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below at the bottom was a tomb. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, And I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And then he stood still a while to look and wonder. For it's very surprising to him that the side of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and he looked again even till the springs that were in his head sent the water down his cheeks. And this is our response. If you've experienced the forgiveness that Christ brings, the life that he gives, 
then you know what Christian experienced. And in faith, the load of sin can be taken from us. Judgment can be averted. And we can experience life and life to the full. If you've never experienced that, if you've never trusted in Jesus, maybe today would be the day where your load of sin is released. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. We recognize and we are thankful that you are patient. Father, we do see that your patience is not infinite. That there was a day then, and as Peter says, there will be a day in the future where judgment will come. And all those who are left standing, carrying their own sin with them, will experience that judgment. But Father, what a joy that your grace is extended in Christ. What a joy, Father, that we can turn to Jesus in faith and he can actually take that judgment. He can actually experience that wrath for us. And we can actually have his goodness credited to our account so that when you look at us, you see Jesus. And all that by faith. Would you help us, Father? Would you work in our hearts? Father, if we've trusted in Jesus, would you help us to rejoice to long more fully to find our eternal satisfaction, our all-satisfying joy in Jesus, to run from sin, to see it for the counterfeit that it is. And Father, if we've not trusted in Christ, would you work in our hearts to turn from sin and to trust that Jesus has died in our place. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.